And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, September 1st, the 1st of September, 2020. And I have my good friend, Miss Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you today, Pam? I'm great, but I cannot believe that it's September 1st already. You know, through all this, I thought things might be a little different by now, but obviously they're not. But the one thing is, it is not sunny out. It is drizzling. And I think it's much needed, even though I love sunshine, a little rain helps clean up everything. So I agree. We needed it badly. And I think, you know, August is usually a dry month, but this was an exceptionally dry August. So it's very welcome, this rain. And I'm I'm hoping we get enough to tide us over for a while, but uh, but who knows? So can you give us an update on uh, the COVID situation as it relates to the census at the hospital currently? I certainly can. So last time we spoke, we had four positive patients and two waiting results. And as of this morning, we had two positive patients, but we have 15 patients waiting results. Now that's a, um, not a clean number from like we normally have because in the past, when somebody was admitted into the hospital, we could do a fast test on patients and know what the results were quickly, so we, they weren't waiting long. But with the uh, laboratory is having a shortage of the ability to do the quick tests because Abbott is sending um, all of the material to states that really need that quick testing, and so we're not getting our supply like we normally do. So we, we have limited Uh, quick tests available. So it'll take a little longer to find out. So I don't think the 15 is anything to be worried about. It's just timing. Although I do see frequently um, every morning who's positive and we still have quite a few people every day out in the community that test positive. In terms of deaths, last time um, we had a total of 82 deaths and now we had 83 deaths. So one additional death. Um, And in terms of DuPage County, last time there was 13,909 positive patients. Um, now there's 14,679. So DuPage County continues to have positive patients. Um, the state of Illinois, or in the deaths in DuPage County was 534. The state of Illinois went from 221,790 to 236,515, so we are still going up in Illinois, and deaths went from 7,888 to 8,064. And for the good news, um, we went from 504 discharges to 516 discharges, and the state recovery rate remains at 95%, so that's all good news. And as it relates to discharged patients, I know that... um, for a while you were putting up a daffodil in front of the hospital representing each discharged patient. And I noticed there was a question on social media last week about those daffodils. Are, are you still doing that? So, no, we did stop putting the daffodils out for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, they, they were yard ornaments, and being out in the weather, they were starting to wear, so they weren't looking as nice. And we wanted them to reflect happiness and not looking like they're falling apart. And the other reason we stopped is we're just not having as many discharges. So 
so it didn't seem as um, necessary to put them out. They were wonderful, wonderful vision to everybody at the time when we didn't think we were getting discharges for people to know there were actually lots of discharges happening. And so I think it was great when we did it. And then now we don't need it as much, so they have been removed. And they were actually given to employees that worked on the units so that they keep a, could keep them as a memory. And it's really mum season. It's not daffodil season anymore. So well, that makes perfect <laughs> sense if they were starting to show a little bit of wear. But they uh, served their purpose, and I, I think that was a great idea while it lasted. Um, could you give us a little update on testing capacity? I know I asked you about it last week. Has that changed at all? Well, like I was saying, our rapid tests, which are the ones that, that give us answers right away, um, we have limited supplies, and we keep working with Abbott to try to get more. We are hoping that um, they will be able to give us more, but when we usually get you know, a couple thousand a week, we get, are getting like 20 and 30, so it's a big change, and so we have to limit our, our rapid testing. We continue to have... Um, four PCR testing platforms running in-house. Um, and as long as we have reagents available, we'll use those. And we have been using ARUP, um, which is an outside lab. And, um, but those take about four days to get back. So we've been looking at two other outside labs, uh, Quest and Mayo Clinic, and we're in the process of working with them because they, they get their own testing materials as well. And so we're going to continue to try to increase our testing capabilities. And are all those tests um, swab-based or are they saliva-based? How does that work? No, those are all swab-based. But we know that uh, saliva-based testing is going on in many places. And so right now we're investigating the possibility of offering saliva testing. And have you heard anything about the accuracy of the saliva test versus the nasal swab? So although they are good tests, saliva tests uh, does have some challenges. The saliva tests currently being used are not as sensitive as the PCR test, which is a test you do with a swab. Um, so for example, the saliva tests need approximately 6,000 viruses per millimeter of specimen to register a positive, while the, the PCR assays will detect a virus with a concentration as low as only 100 viruses per millimeter. So that's a huge difference. Also, the presence of the numerous enzymes that are found normally in the saliva make testing saliva kind of tricky. And, um, and by that, I mean that when you test with saliva, you have to collect and run that test within two hours um, so that the enzymes don't degrade the virus. So you really need to rush that then, don't you? Yep. Um, we asked, or I asked last week a little bit about um, school starting again, and I realized that it just started and some schools hadn't started yet, and some are, are purely remote. So as in-person learning has started at certain schools, have you seen any any significant hospitalizations of teachers or anything like that as a result of that yet? doesn't sound like no, it. There's no, there's no data. Senses. No, there's no data on, on that out there or for us. We haven't seen it. But the worldwide experience shows that in-person schooling is low risk in areas where there's low prevalence of COVID and high risk in areas where there's high prevalence of COVID. And, you know, it's also going to be how well the school and the students follow all of the precautions. Well, I know uh, 
a lot of folks are paying a lot of attention to that because uh, it's affecting society greatly now that the kids are supposed to be back in school and there's no child care and some staff members are not wanting to go back to school. They, you know, they want to be safe. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And I'll, I'm sure I'll ask you more about that in the future. So one question that, that I've had from several people is about blood type. Is there any evidence that certain blood types are more resistance, have more resistance to the disease or fare better when they do get the disease? So I love this question because you hear it in the news all the time or you see it on your news feeds that come up on your, on your um, phones and your emails. And so I went to an expert and wanted to know what the answer was. And it's a little bit of a long answer, so bear with me, but I think it's worth explaining exactly. Sure. So the question of a possible relationship between blood type and COVID-19 severity has been the topic of active research since early in the pandemic. In March, Chinese researchers observed that individuals with type A blood appeared to be at significantly higher risk of contracting the virus as compared to the healthy control group. They also found that the risk for individuals with type O blood appeared to be significantly lower than the control group. In April, researchers at Columbia University reported similar findings. They found that individuals with type A blood were 34% more likely to test positive for coronavirus, while having type O or AB blood was associated with a lower probability of testing positive. Both of these studies were posted online on a website where researchers share preliminary unpublished data before it has undergone peer review. However, a study published in June in the New England Journal of Medicine showed data consistent with these two previous studies. The New England Journal of Medicine study analyzed genetic data from more than 1,600 patients who had been hospitalized with severe cases of COVID-19 in Italy and Spain and compared them with about 2,200 unaffected individuals. Like the previous studies, these researchers found a higher risk for a severe illness among the individuals with type A blood and a protective effect for type O. Type A blood was associated with a 45% increased risk of having respiratory failure, while type O was associated with a 35% reduction in risk. However, other more recently published studies have not demonstrated an association between blood type and COVID-19 severity. In one recent paper out of Massachusetts General Hospital, they found no association between mortality and the patient's blood type and found no significant difference in blood group distribution, suggesting that there was no relationship with, between blood type and risk for getting seriously ill or dying from the disease. These findings are similar to those published last month in the Annals of Hematology by a separate group of Harvard Medical School researchers, also at Massachusetts General Hospital. The analysis from the large multi-institutional study demonstrated no association between A, B, and O blood typing and intubation and or death in COVID-19 patients. In addition, the, the large retrospective study showed no significant connection between blood type and worsening of the disease, between blood type and the need for hospitalization, positioning requirements for patients during intubation, or any inflammatory markers. It appears then that the association between blood type and COVID-19 severity is weak if present at all. 
Not only have recent studies not shown any association between blood type and illness severity, but the original studies claiming to demonstrate this association have been criticized for using inappropriate control groups, specifically using healthy blood donors as controls. It is well known that blood donors as a group have a disproportionate high number of type O individuals since these people are preferred blood donors. So that was my long-winded answer to say that no, there is at this point no association between blood type and severity of illness. So it sounds like in order to uh, to really get a verdict on this, the pandemic will have been over for five years before they can really do the research required. <laughs> I think that might be true, but it was interesting. I thought that was interesting to learn all that was going on. Yeah, because you hear this in the media and you don't know whether to believe it or not. And uh, well, at least we've got a scientific opinion at this point that basically they're it's inconclusive, right? Correct. Um, so those that, that do suffer the worst symptoms uh, with COVID and that require hospitalization, um, and I've asked you this in the past, but now that a little time's gone by, do they seem to experience a lot of long-term, maybe permanent effects from the disease? So this is another thing that we won't know for a while, but there are some people who have been critically ill who have sustained critical lung issues and critical cardiac issues. So there, there is long-term effects for those patients who were very ill. Okay. Any advice for people who um, have COVID and need to isolate at home and they have other family members in the house and for whatever reason, maybe just because of resources, they need to share a bathroom? Any, any words of wisdom about that? Yes. First, I would say don't use the bathroom together. You know, if one's in there, don't go in and brush your teeth while somebody else is in there. But um, what we recommend is just thoroughly wiping down the bathroom after use and before the uninfected family member uses the bathroom. And, of course, diligent hand washing. So anytime someone goes in there, they got to make sure before they leave that they've washed their hands and then don't just touch the faucet to turn it off when after you've washed your hands. Make sure you get a clean towel and dry your hand and then use the towel to wipe to shut off the water because you don't want to wash your hands and then infect them right away and sing your favorite song while you're washing your hands to make sure you wash yes. it long enough and <laughs> sing that long Happy forgotten birthday. verse too to make it even longer <laughs> something like that um i know we've talked about video visits that a lot of uh healthcare professionals are uh are using to evaluate patients. Is that still happening? And do you think that it will be a long-term alternative? Well, it is still happening, but it's, it's, we're only seeing about 8% of our visits, outpatient visits, are video visits. So patients aren't necessarily wanting video visits. What we do expect, though, in the long run is that some people will want video visits, some will not. We'll be keeping them. And a percentage, and I think the percentage will continue to go up, not down, in terms of people who learn to become comfortable with a video visit, just like when people first started doing banking online, and hardly anybody did it. Now almost everybody does. I I believe that video visits for healthcare, for specific things that people are comfortable with, will continue to grow. I would think for the most part, most people might even be more comfortable with a video visit, but then, you know, maybe they're worried about privacy concerns, just like you mentioned in banking. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out because I think a lot of our world is going to change permanently 
because of this pandemic, and I, I think none more than the medical community, but we shall see. So last week I asked you a little bit about flu shots, and I'm going to keep pressing you. When do you think those flu shots will be ready and the best time to get them? Is it going to be in the next few weeks or like maybe the beginning of October? I think it'll be in the next few weeks. I know for our employees, we're going to start doing flu shots as of uh, September 14th, and we'll be doing them through November 13th. So I think they'll be out and available, and we are encouraging people to do them sooner rather than later because we want to prevent um, anybody from getting the flu now while we still don't have a vaccine for the COVID-19. Although I, um, you mentioned it last week a little bit, um, I haven't asked you about um, mental health needs in a while. And in particular, you know, if you listen to the radio or watch TV, you hear a lot about uh, an increase in need for folks suffering with mental health issues or substance abuse issues. Um, is that what uh, Edward Elmer's Health has experienced, a, a greater need? Yes. We definitely are seeing a greater need in both mental health and substance abuse issues. And, um, and you know, you hear about it in the news all the time, people committing suicide, overdoses. We're seeing it in the community. Uh, we just, it's, it's very sad. And um, it's, you can imagine if you are someone that doesn't suffer from depression and how difficult the stress has been on you, well, if you suffer from depression and you've had the stress, it's extremely, extremely difficult on you. So there is a lot more need for mental health and substance abuse services. And and as it relates to substance abuse in particular, um, are those programs, at least the inpatient ones, still happening as normal or has that changed? Um, yes, we still are hospitalizing people that get hospitalized. Inpatient addiction is rare. So, I mean, it's usually um, a long-term program, and, and we don't do the long-term addiction program. We do addiction as outpatient. But our outpatient programs are working. Um, they are, are getting together. They social distance within the program, and they have smaller groups, But they and they have very strong cleaning practices. But uh, doing everything by video doesn't necessarily work. And then our counselors, some of them are doing video and some of them are doing them in person, just like uh, physicians. So we have a variety depending on what people need and where their comfort level is. So it sounds like really the key is to do those in person and just to be safe about it. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, one last thing I want to ask you about that I asked you about last week, and uh, that's because it's near and dear to my heart and I'm involved with uh, – the foundation at Elmhurst Hospital, and that's uh, their big fundraiser, the Autumn Affair. Can you give us a little more information about how folks can sign up for that? Absolutely, and thank you for the opportunity. The Autumn Affair is so important to the financial health of our hospital and also for the community to be involved in knowing what's going on within our organization. It is um, one hour of your time we are asking for. It is on September 12th, and it is going to be on a website, online, so you don't have to go anywhere. We ask you to be involved, and you could sign up through www.emhfoundation.org slash events, or you can call the Foundation event line, which is 331-221-0388. Again, the Foundation event line, 331 
221-0388. And there's no cost, to, no cost to attend, correct? No cost to attend. Absolutely. It should be a fun fun virtual evening, and we encourage people to uh, to gather some friends together at a safe distance and uh, and partake in that, that event. So, Pam, thanks so much for spending some time with us again today. I look forward to doing it again soon, and uh, uh, keep everybody safe over at the hospital. And you have a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Uh, it, it should be hopefully good weather. And it is just, you know, the, the right to go into the fall. We have <laughs> no. to enjoy Labor Day weekend. <laughs> you too. Thanks, Pam. This is Aaron Jason, Business Development Coordinator for the City of Elmhurst. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we are Steve Waddington and the Retro Rocket All-Star. And when we're not rocking in Southern California, we listen to the E-Town Lowdown. This is Dr. Robbie and Rick. E-Town Lowdown, you know what I'm talking about. The E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.